In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Talking to people who talk to other people for a living can be challenging, especially if that person is David Letterman. The legendary comedian and late-night talk show host is always somewhat guarded and never assuming the faux familiarity that some of his contemporaries do. So when he sat down with me to do my show, I wasn't sure what to expect. However, early in our talk, Letterman discussed his college years in the 1960s, and how once the draft was changed, Letterman avoided going off to Vietnam. In those days, you get the student deferment. Right. And Ball State was principally a teacher's college in those days. And so... Uh, it they was, wanted teachers. It was chock full of guys who wanted that student deferment and also the teaching deferment. Right. I was not studying teaching. So the minute I graduated, I was reclassified 1A. Went for my pre-draft physical in April. They said, okay, we'll call you. And then in the meantime, before I was called, Nixon announced the uh, national lottery. They were going to end the draft. They were trying to step down the, the Vietnamese war. My birthday was 342 or something like that out of 356. So that meant even though I was 1A and had my pre-induction physical and was ready to go, it was over for me. At the time, I didn't know how lucky I was. I felt guilty because I had friends who had gone and I had friends who had been in the Marine Corps and I just felt like, well, why me? These guys went, why shouldn't I go? And then it dawned on me pretty quickly. I had been among the really, really lucky. Of course. Yeah. yeah. What was the political landscape like at Ball State when you went through? Well, it was just starting to, uh, I, I used to make jokes that they'd have student protests, but it was to get the cafeteria cooks to wear hairnets. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was creeping in. It was not a hotbed. It was not Madison, Wisconsin. It was Muncie, Indiana. But it was starting, and there were uh, sit-ins and demonstrations, and you know, Bobby Kennedy had spoken on campus. So it was starting. But I, I wouldn't say it, was, uh, it wasn't quite lit up the way it might have been in other regions. You mentioned booth announcers, and I remember I did a YouTube search. I wanted to find this guy that was literally the voice of my childhood. W-O-R, and he'd come on and say, you know, uh, next on Million Dollar Movie, Barbara Stanwyck tells Gary Cooper where he can go in Ball of Fire. <laughs> and he just had this voice that was just, it just haunted yeah. me. Well, that, that's interesting. You mentioned that guy. I had the, the little uh, kid voice from Indiana. I wasn't that guy. But I still had to do the job. And I can't impress upon you enough how tedious it is to sit there for eight hours watching, programming, and logging everything that happens. If you lose audio, you have to log that. If you lose video, you have to log that. You have to log sign-on, sign-off, every commercial, every station break. And at first, I was scared silly. But then, like everything else, you get accustomed to it and you become blasé. And so I would just start wandering the building. 
you know, it was so embarrassing. They would, will the booth announcer please report to the announced booth? And I, oh my God, I've missed the, the so-and-so. The main announcer was a, a guy named Rob Stone, tremendous voice and a, a hopeless alcoholic. I mean, a real alcoholic. Uh, they go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, kind of. Certainly in those days, it was not uncommon. He would come in and he would bring a pint with him. And so in the spirit of this, we who were working the sign-off shift, we would always send somebody out for beer. And we would be at the station uh, late at night signing off, and myself and the director and whomever else was there, we'd be drinking beer. Oh, my, was this fun. In those days, you would do a five-minute news summary before sign-off, nightcap news. And then you would do the... Uh, the broadcast statement, uh, you'd read that over the slide of the station, and then they would go to the national anthem with the waving flag. <laughs> One night, a guy in the props department said, I can reconstruct exactly the station as, as pictured on the slide. We can make it blow up. So as you're, as you're reading the uh, thank you and good night and, and uh, why not tune in WLW overnight and blah, blah, this and so until tomorrow, good night and good luck. I have the thing blow Kaboom. up. Yeah. And so we did. Oh, God, we were proud of ourselves. You know, we really thought we had done something. Jeez, nobody ever said anything. No. It was bizarre. Nobody got fired. Nobody asked a question about it. You know, it was this cult of four or five guys who had pulled this off. And we just thought, well, this is, one, it was fun. But two, you wanted, but no, nobody, nobody said but, anything. But, but what's interesting is from school and then doing the job and so forth and the booth thing, the comedy gland is secreting through yes. the entire yeah. time. Yeah. What are you doing for that? Meaning other than blowing up the studio and the, and the sign off, uh, are was, you writing? Or are you yes, I, I was looking for any outlet and it came for me doing the weather. I knew nothing about weather and you, you'd go downstairs and they'd have the AP machine and the map would come over, the national map, and you would go to the big magnetic board in the studio and you put the low uh, system and you put the high <laughs> system and you put the occluded front and you put the rain showers. And so it told you everything. Any time at all that I could monkey with that, I was very happy. I can remember two episodes. One, I was uh, had forecast sunny and dry, and we we go off the air and blah blah. And I go outside. This this is a horrible thunder shower. The rain is coming down in sheets, and I, I was just twenty feet away, just oblivious of this <laughs> this uh, dangerous monsoon. Yes, coming through this one of these violent midwestern summer thunderstorms coming through, <laughs> attacking the station. I got to be well known because this Sunday night show was on after the ABC Sunday Night Movie. And in those days, that was big programming. Big show. Yeah. We got a bunch of complaints. And this was when people were wearing bell-bottom pants. I don't think you could buy regular pants. Got a lot of calls about he's either not wearing underpants or he needs to wear underpants. That's how I distinguish myself. Do you want to clear that up now? Were you wearing underpants? <laughs> well, of course you, I was wearing, wearing underpants. underpants. It was Indianapolis. I, yeah. we, we're not yeah. taught Good to God. go out without our underpants. We're Americans. I, it's, whatever problem was perceived was not mine, I right. assure you. Right. And then where do you go from there? Uh, in terms of underpants? And for, well, if you wish. <laughs> I got tired of uh, sitting in the booth and tired of working weekends. And also, they didn't... Uh, they didn't want me there. They would keep bringing in auditions for my job. <laughs> that really hurt my feelings. But I couldn't argue with them because I didn't know what I was doing. But the cumulative effect of being on TV a, a lot there, we got this memo once from the research department. And of all of the people, the, the anchor team and whomever else, I had the highest uh, Q rating of anybody there. And it was only by accident, really. So I started looking for a job. Couldn't get hired out of the market. Some people I knew were coming in to start up a talk radio station. So I went to work at the new talk radio station. What was the format? It was News Talk Sports, WNTS. 
when I resigned to quit, give my notice to the uh, general manager, the guy said, and it chilled me at the time, he said, really? You're leaving this TV station to go work for a brand new radio station? And I said, yeah. And he said, you will never be heard of again. So I went to the station, worked there for a year, realized that I had to make a move. Nobody would would listen. It was a daytime station. This was tremendous. They had a daytime license, which meant the radio station came on when the sun came up and went off when the sun went down. Literally. Yeah. And in the winter, we were off at 345 in the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and I, I had the midday shift. And I'd come in at noon, and two hours later, I'd be going home. It was it was Enjoy great. your afternoon. Yes. Yeah. signing off. <laughs> and then in the summer, conversely, you were on yeah. to like 930 or 10. It was uh, awful. It was uh, Watergate, and, and people assumed, well, the guy's got a talk show on the radio. I bet he knows everything there is to know about Watergate, and I knew nothing. And people wouldn't call in, and I'd have to read endless pages of wire copy. I remember reading a, a story about Gordon Strachan, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. His name kept coming up, a special counsel, so-and-so, Gordon Strachan, advisor to the White House, Gordon Strachan. Finally, the phones light up, and I said, thank God. But I said, yes. He says, uh, it's not Strachan, it's Strawn. You're mispronouncing the guy's <laughs> name. I said, okay, thanks. Do you have <laughs> thanks. a question? No. Click, buzz, so there you go. Were you ambitious during this time? Did you have an ambition? Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I really thought um, I really thought I could write half hours, situation comedies. I thought I could what do What did it. you watch? Well, in my childhood, it was completely different. It would have been stuff like Saturday morning nonsense. Then as I grew older, you'd get uh, Mayberry, uh, the Andy, Andy Griffith, Griffith Show, Ozzie and Harriet Nelson, the Nelsons, and that kind of stuff. And then later on, in, in those days, it was all the Mary Tyler Moore things, the Bob Newhart show and the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I really thought, oh, I can write uh, one of those Mary Tyler Moore shows. And it turned out I couldn't. As you know, there's a template for writing those things. They use the template because it's successful. And if you don't know the template and you think you can make a better version of it, it's a, a very foreign object to them. To you, you think, look, I've improved on the template, but they don't want that. They want, they, that. They want something They're to like work. They're like Detroit. Yes, that's right. I mean, we're talking about Mary Tyler Moore. That's pretty good stuff. Sure. Smart. And you're in L.A. at that time? No, I was still in Indianapolis, and I would be sending scripts and looking for an agent. Finally, a guy said, yeah, if you come to Los Angeles, he said, I'll be your agent. So with that encouragement, I, I just left. And I don't know about you, but, you know, your friends say, okay, here, you can meet with so-and-so, and, and you can meet uh, Mel Blank's son, you can meet with him, and, and I know this one, and I know that one. And so you go out there with high hopes. I guess it's like the pioneers in the Conestoga wagon, and they run out of beans, you know, they're in Salt Lake, and they got nothing to eat. So within the first week, you run through all of your appointments. And then you got nothing. Yeah, then you're Shanghai. That's right. You're, that's just, right. you're just on the shoals <laughs> yeah, there that's right. in L.A. I remember when I went to L.A., I did a soap opera at 30 Rock. The show was about to go off the air. And I'll never forget this guy that was the producer. You know, we're in the hallway, and they asked me to extend my contract for a few months. And he says that line to me. He says, what do you think you're going to do? Go out to Hollywood? Become a star in the movies? <laughs> I'm walking down the hallway. He's going, you listen to me. Come back here, you. You don't walk away from me. And I walk away from the guy, and I go to L.A. Now, were you ever haunted by that? <laughs> did, did you, honestly, did, did you, because in my case, Every I thought night. the guy was, I said, oh, yeah, well, of course I haven't do. considered that. Well, of course you do. Yeah. Who, 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 did you ever think you were going to be, I mean, I don't want to get, you know, crass about it, but you live a very, very good life. You've been an enormously successful man. Did you ever dream you would be as no. successful as you are? No. Never? No. I, and, I, and I'll tell you the, the same for you, same for most people in this uh, in show business. You're just lucky enough to get to do exactly what you want to do all your life. So that's the success. 
You know, I always thought there was some commission that was going to come to my door of my apartment right. I was living in in West Hollywood, and they were going to knock on the door. They're going to say, "We're the uh, Motion Picture Acting Commission." Yes, and we've uh, got the reports here, Mr. Bowman. We're going to take you to the airport right away and send yeah. you back to New York. I, I think uh, you you're know, not going to get into this. I know the origin of this is is your personal fear, but I think that commission is not a bad idea and long, <laughs> long overdue. Honest <laughs> to God, can we get that up and yeah. on its feet? Can, can we get a bill? I remember Pass. there was a a, a guy, a, a writer for the uh, Old Tonight Show. Somebody Cohen, his his listing in the white pages was, say it's Marty Cohen. It was not Marty Cohen. Marty Cohen, president of show business. <laughs> I, just, I thought, oh, that's lovely. So when you were you doing stand up ever in Indiana? Uh, no, never did. In never. fact, one of the things that I didn't like doing was uh, uh, when I was at the radio station, part of the deal was, oh, uh, we just sold a th- thing to Kroger grocery stores, but part of the deal is we want you to go out there and emcee the so-and-so-and-so, and I hated it. And I finally told the guy, I said, I can't do this. So one of my big built-in fears was getting up in front of people that I didn't know and trying to you know, hold their attention, let alone be funny. But for me, the, the roadmap uh, to pursue was handed to you uh, via Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show. They would have comics on. It would be David Brenner. And uh, they would say, oh, and they'll be appearing at the comedy store. And it seemed to be that the connection between the comedy store and The Tonight Show w- was pretty close. Yeah. So even though he I— He mined that facility, that particular facility. Yeah. It was uh, the uh, the farm system for the comedy yeah. store. And great guys were coming out and getting on, and Steve Landisberg, and uh, on and on. I say on and on because I can't remember the name. So I just... <laughs> it works. Uh, yeah. Even though I wanted to be a writer because I didn't have the courage to tell my family and friends that what I really want to do is, you know, somehow get famous and be on TV. So when I went out there, the, the first Monday I was in uh, California when I moved in 75, I uh, wrote down some stuff and went to the comedy store and got on stage. How'd it go? It was, it was awful. I'd never been in a darkened room with a spotlight and it was just like a train coming at me. Right. So I did my little five minutes from Rote left, and then uh, the owner of the place, oh, you should come back and do some more. <laughs> so I thought, are you kidding me? And she said, no, you can MC. So I came back, and I was the MC. You're and, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Derek. <laughs> Great. So, so that was 1975. 1978, three years later, I was on The Tonight Show. That worked so much better than it should have. I think it must be harder now to and get— And was it three years of just working that room and working the mic and working stand-up? Yeah, yeah. but it was—I mean, it was fun because every night you go there and you were hanging around guys, Jay Leno and, and Robin Williams and George Miller and Tom Dreesen and Jeff Altman and anybody now who is you're aware of— you would see every night. And it was great fun. I mean, my God, it was great fun. It didn't make any difference what you did during the day. You knew that when it got dark, you'd be on Sunset Boulevard. The place would be packed. And in those days, the only room she had was this uh, tiny little original room. And it was next door to uh, Art LaBelle's, uh, he would have a 50s dance party in in the next room on the weekends. And you would get a lot of uh, gang guys going to Art LaBelle's 50s. Mob guys. No. Okay. Uh, what was gang then? Uh, Biker uh, Barrio. Gang? Oh, okay. Um, is that all right? Yeah, low riders. Yeah. Okay. And uh, one one night, a friend of mine, Johnny Dark, is on stage, and a guy comes up, and he's got a gun, and he's standing next to Johnny while Johnny's doing his little singing impressions of uh, whomever, and and he had to quietly, you know, talk his way out of the guy using the gun, and it was exciting stuff. And Richard Pryor would come in, and Freddie Prinze would come in. 
So you say, yeah, night after night, but still in all, how could that not be fun? So did Carson find you there? Well, they had a guy. You know, they had a team of guys when I was there that would come in. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, I got on this Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, to write. To write and perform. And oh, that was it was me and Michael Keaton, Jim Hampton, and Dick Sean, and Susie Kurtz, and uh, Julie Kahn. Judy Kahn. Judy Kahn. Thank you very right. much. So from that show, uh, they said, oh, well, we'll put uh, you on because you're on that show. You can come out and do stand-up, and then you go sit down and talk to Johnny. And without that, you never know what the formula is. You could be on nine times and never get to sit down with Johnny. You could be on for six years and never – or you could be bumped 40 times and never – but because of this – oh, and he's appearing on the so-and-so show, the Mary Tyler Moore show – I got to sit down with Johnny, and and that was again that was craziness. That was that was another one of those. Well, you know what it is because you idolized him. Oh yeah, it's such a jolt. The material is so committed. You don't have to think about anything. You just have to start talking, and it all comes out. The adrenaline takes days to burn out of you. Holy God, you're sitting next to Johnny Carson. I mean, you just can't believe it. I mean, to me, and I think most guys my age who are out there doing that. One, the fact that it worked. You know, really, I I drove in a pickup truck with my wife to L.A., and three years later, I'm sitting next to Johnny Carson. That's not supposed to happen. You know, it's just not supposed to happen, but it did. Now, do you think that Carson was someone who, do you think he saw himself in you? Do you think he saw the Midwestern gene in you? I don't know. I mean, it was so easy for other people to make that comparison, uh, and that seemed to be the formula, but I don't don't know if he felt that way or not. I, I don't. I can't answer that. And I then what happened after that? Well, your life changed immediately. Suddenly, you weren't just a guy who was at the comedy store. You were the guy that had been on with Carson. Right. And then I, I was on, I think, th- two or three more times, and then I started hosting the show. And again, that was another, you know, you just feel like... It's like it's like winning the World Series your rookie season. What's the you gap of time between when you first sat down with him and when you started hosting? Uh, the first time I was on was uh, November of 78, and I think I hosted uh, – it was Monday night opposite the Academy Awards. So it was the Good spring. Right. Yeah, in right, April. Right. So it would have been April, yeah. March, April, yeah. Johnny had other things yeah. to do. He was having a big Oscar party. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Turn the lights out, kid. And it was uh, – I was just frozen. I was just frozen. I can remember Peter LaSalle coming up to me during the commercial break, and he said, you've got to loosen up. You've got to loosen up. <laughs> that I helps, said, too, I said, Thanks. Yeah, they get that in a manual. Thanks for that tip. Yeah, page 49. I remember the, the first night I was on The Tonight Show. And I'm, I'm telling you, for guys at the comedy store, this was it. This was like people lining up to squeeze through a funnel. You know, this was it, The Tonight Show. Fighting and competition and backstabbing and bad-mouthing to get to The Tonight Show. This is going to make or break you. If, if you don't do well, you'll never be heard of again. There's, there's no such thing as a guy bombing his first time on The Tonight Show and then having a delightful career. That just doesn't happen. Hmm. You're gone. So there's a lot of pressure. So I, I'm getting ready to go out there just behind the curtain. And my manager at the time, Buddy Mora, who was with Jack Rollins and uh, uh, Joffrey. Charles Joffe, right. they handled Robin Williams and, and Woody Allen and Dick Cabot and some other guys. So that was a big deal for me to be with these people. And, and Buddy and I, nice enough guy, but we never never saw eye to eye on much. And, and I think a lot of it was my immaturity about show business or just ignorance, not immaturity. I, you know, I had no time to be immature. I was just ignorant. So we're standing there and Johnny's saying, our next guest is a young blah, 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 blah. And Buddy says to me, and, he, and Buddy always whispered. Everything was a whisper with Buddy. He says, uh, Robin got Popeye. And I said, 
what are you talking about? Right. His final words to me as I'm going on The Tonight Show for yeah. the first time, yeah. telling me about a booking for one of his other clients. Right. You know, and I just never got over that. My thanks to David Letterman for giving me some of his valuable time. Some talk show guests arrive with a predetermined, almost Arthur Murray-esque pattern of stories and anecdotes. And many shows, in fact, encourage that. On Here's the Thing, some of my guests showed up to have a genuine conversation. And during that time, discussed very personal, even raw moments in their careers and lives. Such was the case with Audra McDonald, who spoke movingly about the difficulties she found as an artist studying and then launching her career in New York. This was my third year, and it had been just yet another year of floundering and doing poorly in all my classes and teachers just saying, you know, you've got to get o- give over to your operatic sound and me not wanting to, not knowing what that was. Um, and when I would get close to an operatic sound, I'd say, I don't want to sound like that. So I felt like I was just being pushed and they were doing their job, rightfully so. This is like, this is your Juilliard to study. This is what you're going to do to push me into a place that just wasn't me artistically. So that coupled with being, you know, 2021 by yourself in New York and being treated poorly by um, whatever his name was. Yeah. What's his name? Yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> um, selling hot dogs on Sixth Avenue, by the way. I wish Screw I could him. say that. No, 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 no. He's he's fine. He's a great guy now. But at any rate, um, so all of that combined with me being sort of like the great hope from my, my hometown, too. You know, oh, Audra's going to make it. If anybody's going to make it on Broadway, it's going to be Audra. I... I the the boy was the catalyst that sort of like sort of broke the, it was the straw that broke the camel's back but it was three years of I'm in the wrong place doing the wrong thing I'm failing miserably but I'm here in Disneyland where I'm supposed to be yeah. where I said I wanted to be so I so what you do I I slit my wrists one night <laughs> and what happened. And, Did you um, write about this? Have you written about this? I haven't. I guess I should. I speak about it all the time. Right. But maybe one day I'll write about it. And who found you? Um, I, I I slipped my wrists and then realized what I had done and called the um, student affairs director who I had become close with and said, I, I, I help me. And someone came and helped you? And they helped me and they took me to a mental hospital. Right. Um, it's interesting. This mental hospital is still there. Um, uh, Gracie Square hospital it's next door to um my uh my OBGYN who delivered my six-month-old uh God, what, last a, what year. a circuit that is so i almost didn't make it and now i made it and i'm in this and, office and over yes, here it was, I, I had to pass it you know every week to go to my OBGYN appointment i had to pass gracie square hospital and every time i passed it there was a part of me just you know waddling down the street pregnant as can be some 29 years later i i would um I would. I, I felt such relief and joy, and and you know, a sense of yes. I I get the I get the big picture now. What month in the school year was that 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 happened? It was January or February. So it's at the, at the, at the midpoint, let's say, and you take off obviously, and you come back when you come back the following fall. Or you don't. I came back um, the following fall for a little bit, and then I got an opportunity to audition 
for something that ended up uh, that I that ended up being the Secret Garden, actually. And I asked the you know administration office and and my the dean what I should do, and they said, you know, go do that. It's okay. Take the time off to go do that. It seems like that's where you want to be. So, and, and, they pro- and they probably didn't want to disappoint you at that point. <laughs> at that point, you at know, point, they were like, "Sure, Audra, go, go, go. You want to go sing on Broadway? Go, <laughs> go do it. Yeah, we don't ever want to get yeah. in your way. You know, the the thing is, there was actually a lot, not a lot, but they had a special arrangement with Gracie Square Hospital. There were a couple of other Juilliard students there that I had wondered what had happened to. I was there. I was at the hospital for. I mean, it's a great square. I think it's private hospital. I was there for a month. Um, they evaluated me and said, "You, you're not going anytime soon." Um, and did that change you? I was so heavily medicated. They, I was heavily medicated. You know? When you say that, it's so compelling to me because when I see you, I think of you. I think of you like you know. You're so strong, your personality and performance. I, I view you as the person that's going to go, I'm going back into the burning building to save the baby. <laughs> I, well, I, that is me now. Yeah. But I think maybe that experience helped make me that now. Um, I mean, look, I'm still a mess. I mean, everybody's a mess, always a mess. I, you know, and I, what I understood. You've got a lot going on. Yeah. And I realized, you know, I'm someone who suffers from depression and... But I learned in the years, A, how to deal with it, B, to find, you know, find my joy, and C, to realize that like alcoholism, it's something that you wake up every day and you say, yeah, that's still something that I have to deal with, as opposed to saying, oh, I'm just not depressed anymore, just, but to learn how to cope with that. And um, my, my art gives me uh, a lot of joy and keeps me, keeps me strong. So what's the first job you do? This is a tired question, but I can't help asking, especially <laughs> with somebody like you. What's the first job when you do when you sit there and go, I got this. I think I got this. Like I'm over the... the... No, no, meaning you know that the sky's the limit for you. You're out there and you're doing it <sighs> and you're connecting to that material. Uh, you know... And you go, I think I really, really have a shot at my dream coming true here. It was Sally Murphy, and I, she was uh, she was Julie Jordan, and I played Carrie Pipperidge. And who was the guy? Uh, Michael Hayden was really the one with, with, with Hayden. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah, yes. With Nick Heitner at Lincoln Center, exactly. Which is also crazy for me to then open, you know, in in Carousel at Lincoln Center, where at Vivian Beaumont Theater, where you can look up and I can see the school that I, you know, had a hard time in, and and I remember standing in those in those windows How at Juilliard, feel? looking at Vivian Beaumont, seeing Patti Lapone performing there, and going, "Why am I not doing that?" And then, how'd you feel? <sighs> um, like the luckiest survivor in the world. I, I mean, and I, I felt a sense of gratitude, a sense of relief, and a sense of, okay, I get it. I now get that I was on my path. That was certainly one of the most moving conversations I've had during my run on Here's the Thing. Thank you, Audra McDonald. Some artists have come on my show, and although I am a fan and thrilled to meet them, there aren't necessarily any surprises. There were, however, some wonderful surprises when I sat down with Carly Simon, one of the greatest singer-songwriters in history. Carly revealed her wide-ranging knowledge of all types of music and music history 
and also identified the man who may be the most important man in her life. And no, it's not who you think. I met Jake at summer camp. We were both counselors at Indian Hill Camp in the Berkshires. And Jake was the, um, the swimming counselor, and he also taught literature. These were very arty kids, and I was the guitar teacher. All, all the kids met me for the first time. They, they had known each other from the summer before. Jake wasn't there yet because he had hepatitis and was in the hospital. But they said, oh, wait till you meet Jake. You'll, be, you'll just fall in love with each other or be friends for the rest of your life. I don't think anybody had ever, ever quite introduced me to somebody before I actually met them with those terms, that they would that we'd be lifelong friends. And the day that he got there, they prepared a cookout. The campers did. And they said, now we want you to come down to the cookout, and Jake will come down to the cookout, and you'll stand opposite each other, but with, with your backs to each other. And at the count of three, you'll turn toward each other. And lightning will strike And you. you'll see what we mean about that you're two halves of one person. And so it was one, two, three, and we turned across this fire which was raging between us, and we both smiled, and we recognized each other in ourselves and vice versa. And it was quite amazing. And Jake just dropped me off here today. What was it about him? Uh, was he writing songs then? Was he, he was a musician and into songwriting? And No, Jake was, at that point, he had just graduated from Harvard. He was the editor of The Crimson, and he went in, he was writing for Newsweek magazine, he was writing for Talk of the Town, and he was, he was the young writer on the scene, he was the young prose writer on the scene. When we started writing songs together, he then also got into working with Terrence Malick, and he worked on Days of Heaven and on Badlands. And he wrote King of Marvin Gardens. With Jack. With Jack Nicholson in, in that. And so he's, he's a man of all words, most of them quite, quite funny. He, he's an unusual to character. Beyond journalism Jake. and screenwriting, he was a lyricist. He was writing lyrics. Well, he had never written lyrics before, but I had this melody. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And... The whole song, because I'd written that for for an NBC special called Who Killed Lake Erie. That was the background music for that. So when I was going to make this demo, I couldn't get lyrics for it, because if I write a melody first, I can't seem to find lyrics to it. It's got to be the other way around. I write lyrics first. And so I had this melody, and Jake was by then my best friend. And I said, do you want to try to write a lyric? So I gave him on a little cassette, I gave him that melody, and he came back a day or two later with a, with a full lyric, except for one verse, which we edited out. My friends from college, they're all married now. They have their houses and their lives. They have their silent noons, tearful nights, angry Lyrics, because there's very pungent lyrics in that song. They, they hate to. themselves for what they are. 
Very good. Who is he talking about? Well, his girlfriend was just about to move in with him. Jake and I lived apart, lived one block away from each other, but we shared each other's lives, and our, our friends were each other's friends. And I met most of the people that I know today through through Jake, or vice versa. So his girlfriend, Ricky, was just about to move in with him, and he realized that she was going to be moving into his rooms. And that's an invasion of territory for certain people. And, it I mean, it means a whole lot. It means not only are you going to be in my rooms, but you're I'm not going to be able to get you out of my rooms if you're living with me. So from Jake's point of view, that that song was, you know, are we going to marry? Are we not going to marry? And we had talked a lot about marriage and a lot about the fact that being in love with somebody, living with somebody didn't necessarily indicate that you had to get married as it when you had your in, the, in the Eisenhower years were, were, were different. Um, what, 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 what situation of yours were you referring well, to? The, Men e- in your life? Every man that I, was, uh, that I was with, I felt I had to marry. If I was going to sleep with them or if I was going to have sex with them in any way, I felt as if I, as if I had to marry them and have children. That's exhausting. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> And so times were changing, sure. and this was a this was a very different era. The Kennedy years were upon us, and the hippiedom, the, the Woodstock era, the times were hugely changing. I mean, I didn't didn't necessarily have to marry the person that you were living with, and raise a family of our own, you and me. Yeah. Um, that's the way they they I've always heard it should be. You want to marry me, right. and then oh, we'll we, marry, we'll marry, yeah, but. With resignation, almost. With resignation, exactly. Interesting. Interesting. And so that's how the song really came to life, was about the disillusionment of my parents' marriage, which was about walking home at night and tiptoeing by my mother's bedroom. And she she calls out sweet dreams, but I forget how to dream. And my father sitting in the living room with his cigarette, his cigarette glows in the dark. And so it's it's, it's all about... The separation of the people who are supposed to be married or supposed to live in one happy house together who are really not happy and living in that house together. And how that affects you when you see them. You wrote a book, and a lot of it includes some of your childhood and your marriage and everything. You know, both your marriages and you—I think your book only goes up through your first marriage, but the idea being that, you know, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Well, you know, th- this, was, omit something. this was very important. When I first got asked to write my memoir was in 1986, and I was, and I was called on the phone by Jacqueline Onassis, and she said, Carly, Carly, I think you would make a wonderful writer of a memoir. And so that's how I started, I, and I wrote about 60 pages at that point, and realizing that I was leaving out the very nucleus of the story, which was about my parents and their marriage, and the the thing that happened to their marriage, which was that which was the great divide of having my brother's tutor come to live with us, and he and my mother fell in love, and that was a separate relationship which existed in the same house that she lived in with my father and us and and all and all of the kids. So trying to leave that out was almost impossible when that formed the very essence of me that I was trying How to write so? about. In the first place, everything was a lie. Everything that I saw as the truth, I was denied the veracity of. 
And so when I said, well, mom and dad are still in love, aren't they, to my older sisters, they'd say, yes, they are. They're very much in love. And then I would ask my mother and father, you know, you don't ever kiss. Can I see you kiss? And my father would bend my mother down in a, in a theatrical kind of like a bogus, dancer, yeah. a bogus kiss. <laughs> bogus. And, uh, and it looked strange to me. There was something very off about it, but I was supposed to believe that they were in love. So they, would, was, so they would perform for you. Yes, that's right. They would right. pretend to mollify you. Well, once. And then she was off with, the, what, was the, uh, what was the name? Ronnie. And where was Ronnie from? Ronnie was um, a teacher or he was going to teaching school at Columbia at, at the time. He was 19 and she was 42. And where was he from, Ronnie? He was from Pittsburgh. Ronnie from Pittsburgh. Yeah. And um, they, were in, they were in love for many years. It, it, it killed my father, a combination of that relationship that she had with Ronnie and the fact of his relationship at, at Simon & Schuster where he, he started to do things in a, in a way that the— accountant who they had brought on board in the company, this, this guy named Leon Schuster, didn't want him to do. And so therefore, my father, at the same time as as he became sort of sick with grief over his relationship with my mother, he got more and more out of the loop at Simon & Schuster, and they sort of tried to move him up or out of the mainstream with Max and Leon. And, and that kind of killed him off further. And then he drank too much too much. He ate too much ice cream and smoked too many cigarettes, and that made him ill. And so the, it was a perfect storm, and he got and he died at the age of sixty. Mm. Now, now Simon, for people who don't know, the Simon and Simon and Schuster was your father. Was he founded father. the company. Yes. It wasn't his family's business. Yes, at that the he age of twenty-four, he met Max Schuster, his old college friend from Columbia. They met. They were both selling pianos at Steinway, I guess, at Steinway and Son. And they said, let's let's go out to lunch and let's let's go into business together. Oh, what should we do? What about books? And so they made a little sign which they put on the office that the office space that they'd rented saying, Simon and Schuster, publisher, what, books. And the first book that they published was the Crossword Puzzle book, which made them a fortune and, and which started them off with great good footing, with good footing, great speed, opportunities to galore, grow. and they were the very you know, center of of the publishing world. And your father was a New Yorker. Yes, yes. And your mother, where's she from? My mother was from Germantown, Pennsylvania. Her mother, Shebe, was Cuban, and came to the United States on a banana boat. She was Cuban, but she was from Africa, but her grandmother had spent some time in Cuba. I have the whole lineup. So are you part black or are you part Cuban or both? I'm 15% black. Really? Yeah. She's an African, an yes, African. Yes, yes, Your maternal grandmother. Yes. And she was African and went to A Cuba. That's right. That's right. And then she was schooled in England, and so she spoke with an English accent. And she was ashamed of what she probably didn't even know she was, but she bleached her skin her whole life, and so she passed as white. But she spoke with an English accent, and we used to always ask her about what her background was, and she would say, when I die, you will find nothing but nothing, and I never talk about the past. So we weren't able to get very much out your of her. Your mother's mother. Yes, we weren't able to get anything out of her, but she was such a character. Did your mother have a career? My mother did not have an official career, no. She was a singer, but she, and she was a wonderful singer, but she, her, her career was raising her four kids. Now, what was music 
in your home. I mean, your father from a young age becomes a very successful uh, publisher in New York. I mean, but the, the he name was is really a pianist. In fact, when he when he had a bunch of heart attacks and strokes toward the end of his life, and he didn't have his mind and he didn't have the capacity of the full fullness of his mind. He always thought he was going to Carnegie Hall when, in fact, he was just going downtown to dinner with my mother. And he'd say, well, we, "Sissy, you forgot to get off at Fifty Seventh Street. We're, I'm going to be late." Because he always thought he was going to be playing it. He didn't always think, but once in a while he had the fantasy that he was going to be playing at Carnegie Hall. He was a great pianist. Classical pianist. Yes, yes. So music in your home is classical music? It was classical on the part of my father. And a circle of people coming in and out of your home who were celebrities and... I have two uncles, one on my father's side and one on my mother's side, started jazz magazines. One downbeat and the other metronome. So they were very good friends, and they and they had all the drummers and the the jazz players in this house that we lived on on Eleventh Street. So there was music from from the jazz uh, era, and then my mother always sang the the show tunes because this was the great era of of Oklahoma and yeah, Carousel Rogers and Showboat and, 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 and Porgy and Bess was actually performed for my mother and father first by George and, and Ira Gersh when they came over to our house. And my mother was asked to sing Summertime since she had a beautiful soprano voice for them to see how it would sound in the, the soprano voice or to see what it's... it's. I don't know exactly what they went over there for, but my mother ended up singing soprano and on Summertime and my father ended up ended up correcting a couple of her notes and that embarrassed her tremendously. And she always used that as the excuse as to why she had an affair and cuckolded him. No. <laughs> One of them, yes. That was from my interview with the brilliant, the beguiling, Carly Simon. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. 
Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at UE.com slash FITS. One of the most enjoyable times in my career was when the late Robert Osborne invited me to join him on Turner Classic Movies for The Essentials, a program we ended up doing a few times together. Beyond his abundant knowledge about and passion for movies, Osborne was one of the most elegant and gracious men I've ever met in show business. So it comes as no surprise that I invited him on Here's the Thing. This is Robert Osborne. I grew up in a small town where I went to the movies a lot and fell in love with all these people. I also fell in love with the movie business. So all I saw were actors on the screen. So I thought, well, that's what I have to be if I want to be a part of the movie business. Nobody then was talking about film editors. There were no film schools talking about directing, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I decided I want to be an actor. And so I was doing— What did your parents say about that? That was fine, as long as I got an education They were very open-minded people. Yeah, they were. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they were. They were the kind of people that said, you know, be practical, get an education in something you can make a living at, but do what you want to do. At least try it, and then if it doesn't work out, move to something else. So I started doing a little theater work in Seattle, and one of the plays I did was a play called Night Must Fall with Jane Darwell. Jane Darwell I don't, is the lady, you would know this, who played Henry Fonda's mother in The Grapes of Wrath and won the Oscar for it. And she's the one that said, you know, when you get finished with this, what are you going to do when you finish your Air and Force? And she came up to Washington to a regional theater to, to do, do the play. Fall. Yes. And so I said, well, I'm going to go to New York. And she said, no, you have more of a California look. You should come to California. And she said, you can stay at my house. She had a a staff and all of that kind of stuff. They lived out in the valley. And she said, you can at least get your feet on the ground there. I'll introduce you to an agent. She said, I think you do very well. So I did. Stayed with Jane Darwell and her family at her house on Ethel Avenue in the San Fernando Valley. I know Ethel Avenue. Yes. Introduced me to an agent with MCA. In those days, if you could really walk and talk at the same time, you could get a, a contract at the studio. The first one he took me to was Fox, and they said, we want you to be under contract. So I was there for like six months. And during that period of time, I did a television show, which was a Western that I was doing a little theater group. This is a convoluted story, but I'm I'm going to get to where I'm going. And it was a theater group run by an actor named Francis Lederer. So I was doing some improvs in the class, and one of his friends came to it, and that was Paul Henried. You know, with the two cigarettes with Betty Davis. So (laughs) Paul Henried was saying, well, I'm directing a Western. Got a part coming up I think you'd be right for. I want you to come over and read for it next week. So, you know, I was kind of new to all of this. And I thought, you know, I went to California and I got a contract right away and got a part in a TV thing right away. I thought this is kind of easy. So anyway, I did the TV show and I had the lead in it for this one episode. The stage that we shot an outdoor sequence for this Western on was where Paul Henry made the Spanish Main, which meant there was also the soundstage where Fred and Ginger did all their big dance numbers. So that was kind of thrilling to me. Didn't mean anything to anybody else in the (laughs) day. Fred who? So anyway, I went back the next day to thank the casting man and the people that had put me in this thing for Paul Henry. The Californians. The Californians. There was this wonderful man, Milt Lewis, who used to be a talent scout at Paramount Studios. He was in the office, and I thanked him. And he said, well, do you have an appointment for the Lucille Ball auditions? And I said, no, I don't know about any Lucille Ball auditions. 
And he said, well, yeah, she's uh, putting a contract group together. And so she's going to have these auditions. And I think they're next week. But I'm not sure. But let me call up to her office and find out. Instead of a secretary answering, Lucy answered. <laughs> and she, he said, I got this guy down here. And I thought he might be a good bet for your contract people. So she obviously said, well, I'm not doing anything. Send him up right now. So I went up to this office. There she was. Now, I have to tell you, I was impressed by her, but I didn't see a lot of I Love Lucy because when that was really hitting its peak, I was in college and I was studying. I had a study hall. I didn't watch TV and I loved the movies. If it had been Lana Turner I'd met or somebody, I wouldn't have been able to talk. But it was Lucille Ball. And she was impressed that I'd been to college because she hadn't finished high school. This I got to know about her later. But also she was impressed by the fact I was living at Jane Darwell's house Mm -hmm. because I had asked her in our conversation who some of her favorite leading men were. And she said, leading men didn't mean that much to me. I like working with talented people, but it was the character actors I loved. She said, I loved like Edward Everett Horton, and I loved Harpo Marx, and I loved Donald Meek. Well, I knew who all those people were. And she was impressed by that because at that time, nobody knew who those people were. There was no nostalgia. Nobody cared. So it's interesting how at that point in your life, the passion you had that and the got, curiosity yes. you had that you've turned into a career yeah, now, yeah. the roots of it were you were just impressing a smaller circle of people with right. that knowledge. Yeah. And you're there in J- yeah. and, and, and Lucille Ball's going, God, I love Jane Darwin. Yeah. Darwell. yeah. So what are she, we having lunch together? So, so she said, is there any film on you? And I said, well, I just did this thing with Paul Henry, and I'd also done a test with Diane Baker. And so she called over to Fox can I see the Diane Baker test? It's Lucille Ball. How soon can you send it over? Lucy was somebody that the minute she wanted something, she did it. She hung up the phone. She said, they're going to send it over. It'll be here in about a half an hour. So we kept talking. Well, the test was made for Diane, not for me. So there was a lot of the back of me. So when it was over, Lucy didn't really say anything. She just thanked me for coming by. And I thought, well, She wasn't that impressed, but at least I got to spend some time with Lucille Ball. Like a week later, a message comes on my voice. uh, You're answering service. Answering service. (laughs) Absolutely, answering service. Call Lucille Ball's office right away. Here's the number. Hello, La Brea 9, <laughs> 2000, who are you calling? Sue's answer phone, yes. I called the number, and the secretary said, well, Lucille Ball wants you to come to dinner on Friday night, if you're available, and meet Desi. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I go to Lucy's house that Friday night. There's no Desi, but there's Lucy, there's Janet Gaynor, there's Joseph Cotton, oh. there's Kay Thompson, oh. Chuck Walters, Charles Walters, the director, Roger Edens, and a couple of other people, and her sister, Cleo, who was actually her cousin but raised as her sister, and me. After the dinner, and they were all chatting and laughing and all of that. Drinking. Drinking. Not Lucy. <laughs> Lucy wasn't a drinker at right. that point. Right. She, she learned how to drink a little bit later on, but right. not at that point. So we went in the living room and— uh, Where was the house? On Roxbury, right next door right. to Jack Benny. Right in the heart of Beverly Hills. Right, right. Exactly. And just down the street from Ira Gershwin and around the corner from <laughs> Don't Agnes do celebrity Morehead. map with me, yeah. you. <laughs> so anyway, after dinner, we went in the living room. She pushes the button and the, the painting goes up, pushes another button, the screen comes down. And I'm thinking, did you ever believe that you would ever be? And then I thought, no, wait a minute. I always knew I was going to be here. Did this you? Isn't, I did. Did you? I really? remember that thought. I first started to say automatically, did you ever think, God, this and, is— and, and that was the beginning for you. Yeah, oh, and oh, I but, thought, no, I always knew I was going to be with people like this. 
And I relax then. I really relax. Because I thought, no, this is where you're supposed you're to be. comfortable. Yeah. And they this, liked you and you liked yeah, them. This is where I'm supposed to be. What did they screen? What movie do you remember? Funny Face, which was, <laughs> which was about three years old. But what Your was, memory is so annoying. What, no, but what was great about it was there's a part in Funny Face when Kate Thompson and Audrey Hepburn get up and do a number called On How to Be Lovely Together. Kate Thompson got up by the screen and did the number. So, <laughs> and it was, you know, fun. Watch the movie. The movie was over. Everybody starts to go. So I think, well— I'm supposed to go, too. I still don't know quite why I'm here. And it certainly wasn't Lucy was saying, you know, stay around, little boy, or anything like that. Yeah, it wasn't that. Yeah. So we got to the front door, thanking Lucy for the evening. She said, well, have you signed the papers yet? I said, what papers? I want you another contract. And I said, well— Nobody's ever you think mentioned anything. You're here to have dinner. <laughs> We're doing business, you fool. It's Hollywood. Yes, you idiot. Yeah. Nobody's ever mentioned anything about a contract or anything. And she said, "Give them the address tomorrow and sign the papers." We don't offer these contracts to just anyone, <laughs> you fool. Jesus. So I was under contract then to Desilu, and so that was for two years. Now the great thing about it was, is that for what, film and television, film and television, it didn't pay us much money at all, but. It was like a master class for me because there were about 12 of us under contract, but there were three of us who were really interested in the business. And she kind of recognized that right away and took us under her wing. That's when I first met Betty Davis. Betty Davis came to L.A. in a play called The World of Carl Sandburg. So she took us to the play and then took us backstage afterwards to meet Betty Davis. And Vivian Lee came in Duel of Angels. And so she went backstage and said a little Vivian Lee and took us with her. Anytime there was somebody like that, Noel Coward or Marlena Dietrich, mm-hmm. she would take us there, pick up the tabs, because, again, she knew she wasn't paying enough money to, to keep up. for us to be able to do that. Okay. So we got this terrific education. And she also – now, Desi at this point was womanizing. He wasn't around much. So she would get movies – that we wanted to see or hadn't seen because they weren't that accessible in those days and run them at her house. Or she would show us I Love Lucy shows she'd done, bad ones, and show us why they didn't work. Then show us a good one and why it did work. She wanted to share with someone. Yes. She also, the first day any of us were under contract there and we first met, she arrived. She'd just gone to a bank, which was right around the corner from Desilu, and she got uh, 12 savings accounts that she opened put like $50 in, and she gave us, in each of our names, gave us the books, and she said, every week you have to put something away. And we were, as I say, making very little money. And we say, Lucy, you know, we don't, barely enough to, to live on. She said, it can be only $5, but every week put something away. You won't miss it. It'll add up. She had a very maternal instinct. Yeah. and she you. said, no matter what, the thing you must do is have enough money that you don't have to make decisions based on money. For a kid from Colfax, Washington, this was just invaluable. I've been to college, but I never had these kind of life lessons. In the course of it, she met my folks, and she got to know me. She said to me early on, you can do this as an actor, but she said, and I think you could do well, but it's not going to make you happy. This is not the right line of work for you. And she said, you love old films. You love history. You love everything about the business. And you were a journalism major in college. We have enough actors. You should write about movies. And the first thing you should do is write a book. Who said this to you? Lucy. She said, it doesn't even have to be a good book, but find a subject about the movies that nobody's done and write a book about it. And you did? And I said, why? 
She said, if you write a book, it shows you have the discipline to sit down and do that. And did you? Yes, I did. What book? It was a book about the Oscars. Is this the book right here? Oh, my God. Yeah. Academy Awards Illustrated. I want our, our, yes. uh, I want our <laughs> listeners to know that yeah, Mr. Osborne's stunned expression yes, indeed. as I oh show a copy of the book that he yeah, that indeed. found. My God. That's the book. That is amazing. There he is. Yes, there he there was. He is. I know that his fans at Turner Classic Movies miss Robert Osborne. I know that because I'm one of them. I saved a very special guest for last. John Robin Bates, or Robbie to his friends, is a great writer and an intoxicating raconteur. This is without a doubt one of my all-time favorites. The details he shares and the insights into his work and life are so beautifully crafted, his stories so smart and funny, he should have his own show. I found myself very much like the character in, in my play, played by Beth Marvel and Rachel Griffith at various points, a writer who is a dangerous creature. And I had a note to myself, play about daughter of a famous family who writes a book about her growing up in this family, something like that, the danger of telling the truth that turns out to be a lie. And at that moment, this lady of a certain age walked by me and she looked to me like um, Pat Buckley, the old doyen of New York conservative politics, the wife of uh, Bill Buckley. Bill Buckley, And I'd had lunch with her once and found her to be charming and engaged. And this woman walked by me on this beach with her hat and in a one-piece bathing suit. I immediately felt the mother in that play. And I suddenly remembered old California the way it was when I was a kid. And we were just in the throes of an election at the time, too, or about to be. And the Republicans of certainly of that period, and even more so today, were very confusing to me because they seemed recognizable to me as having a coherent, cohesive, cogent argument for their principled positions, which had to be principled in some way. The play just came together in one fell swoop. Old California, conservatives, yeah. the old Hollywood Reaganites. system, Reaganites. I, I even remembered I'd gone to high school with, I think, the daughter of John Gavin. And I thought, you know, and because I love Touch of Evil, and the, I think, isn't John Gavin? No, he's not in Touch of Evil. He's in, he's in Psycho. He's in all these movies, and I thought about— He was the ambassador to Mexico. That's right, as is the Stacey Keach character in my play. And I thought about— <laughs> Your character's based on John Gavin. To some extent. There are all these archetypes you know, in it. I hear you. I love it. At the back of all this, of course, there's also Joe Mantello, who, you know, we're no longer a couple, but he's my family, my best friend. And you cease being a couple what year? 2002. So it was a while. And he kept saying to me, with all possible respect, nobody's waiting for the next Robbie Bates play. And, you know, these are chilling words because I have so much to say and it's not coming out. My equivalent of that is my agent said to me, he goes, it's not that these people don't want to hire you because they don't like you. He says, they don't want to hire you because they don't think of you at all. Jesus. I thought, wow. Well, it's terrible because the worst thing that can happen to an artist, I'm invisible. Sure. I no longer matter. Yeah. 
for me, writing plays has always been very tricky. I don't know a lot. I don't have a lot to say. I reach things very slowly, and I, I sometimes it seems facile and easy, and to me, sometimes my thoughts and my sort of expressed opinions in plays seem hollow or naive even. Why? Because I know there are deeper truths always to be found and that I'm... But don't you think that seeking them and being aware of that makes you more likely to find it than anybody else? You didn't go to college, did you? No, I Why? didn't. Why? You wound up educating yourself. I wish I had gone to college. Why was, didn't you? I was a depressed and unsettled kid. And Why? I don't... I think I wasn't at peace with probably any element of who I was, whether it was a sort of nascent intellectual or sort of pre-expressive homosexual kid or— You grew up where? Variously, L.A. From, you were born where? In L.A. And you lived there till you were how old? Seven, then Brazil for three years in Rio, and then uh, South Africa for six and a half years till I was 18. And your father was in the condensed milk business. My father worked for a giant multinational, Carnation Milk, yeah. Right. It was a condensed milk business. So L.A., Brazil, uh, South Africa. And then back to L.A. Back to LA. And when you finally get back to L.A., how old are you? 18. So high school is over. I just finished high school. I'd sort of lost time through all the travel. What was high school in South Africa like? I couldn't get used to things like cricket and corporal punishment. You know, you'd get caned for, like, not doing well on a spelling test. Literally caned. And I think I was so busy trying to be sly and charming that I forgot how to be me. That, I think, led me to rebel against learning itself. So I was sort of interested in the few things I was interested in, literature, history, but I wouldn't apply myself to anything except escape. And part of escape meant not going to college. I was really lonely, and I, I kind of became a depressed kid. And, How did um, that manifest itself, if you can say? I, I think I— Did you know you were gay then? Yes, I definitely knew that. I knew. Did that add to your depression? Did it make you feel more isolated totally. in that environment you lived in? Because it, was, so it wasn't proactive, the gay community there. In 1973? <laughs> yeah. Talk about getting caned. Yeah, well, um, I think my parents, who loved me very much, were distracted by their own terrors. There are certain families that are born in terror. And live in terror. Um, conceived in terror. I need you to write a play for me. I want to be called Conceived in Terror. <laughs> Here we go ahead. Well, no. I mean, Death of a Salesman is, is a family that lives in terror. Right. You were how old when you arrived in Durban? Ten. So you were there eight years. Yeah, I was there almost eight years. The critical time. Ten years old. So all of your real, the back half of your childhood, your teenage years especially, you are in Durban. I guess I was 17 or something when we left. But you had finished the high school program. No, no, I finished it in L.A. You did? Where? Beverly Hills High School. What was that like? I, you know, was the only kid I knew who rode their bike to school because everybody else's parents had given them a Fiat. Literally? Yeah, or something. Who were your friends then? Who did you become friends with? Anyone? Oh, yeah. In fact, Jenny Livingston went on to make uh, Paris is Burning. 
great documentary. Tina Landau, a great theater director. Gina Gershon, my oldest friend from high school. We were in plays together in the drama department. So I became friends with, and I say this with real respect and love, with fellow freaks. How were you feeling about yourself and about life that last year in Beverly Hills? I think I was scared to death still. I mean, it was just a new form of foreignness, but it had the pattern of something very familiar to me. But, you know, I remember being taken to a party really early on, and I had developed a kind of weird eye beforehand for art. I thought maybe I was going to be a painter or an art historian or something. And I walk into this house, and there is a giant David Hockney, and next to it, is a giant mother well. I'm standing in front of this giant painting that's famous that I've looked at in books, Thames and Hudson art books, while I was in Durban at the art library of the university. I don't know, the world was just very real and different, and it was easier to, like, have sex, and it was easier to, to function. Were you writing? I guess I was sort of writing, yeah. What were you writing? I was writing really bad short stories about alienated Paul Bowles kids adrift in foreign countries, which is basically, to tell you the truth, still what I'm doing. It just looks <laughs> slightly, the wallpaper's prettier now. Where were you living at that age? I was living um, on friends' sofas, like the parents of children I went to high school you, with. You were the pity. beloved house guest. I was. I was just this freak, you know, and I was at odds with my family at the time, you know, and I had escaped, and it was just a nightmare. How do we get from there to fair country, Gordon Davidson? You know, in Pinocchio, where he falls in with actors? Mm -hmm. I'm walking around. I ran into this girl I, I knew from high school. She said, what are you doing? And I, I'm sort of looking for a job. I think I'm starving to death. I'm not sure. She said to me, and I should have known, she said, well, my father just fired me. He needs a new assistant. <laughs> he and? needs a new assistant. And I was like, well, what does he do? And she said, oh, he's a film producer. Who was the film producer? It's this great guy. And he... <laughs> Was he a working producer? I'm only asking for a name to make it so easier. So I thought. My first day at the office, he, he says to me, whatever you do, answer the phones, but never pick up the phone. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And he said, you'll do fine. And he had a gang of cronies, all of whom had contempt for the studio system and had worked around the edges of it or in it had done well, fallen out of favor, usually had destroyed themselves through my favorite thing, their own ambivalence. I found myself at home for the first time in my life. <laughs> With a, in a nest of scorpions. Yes, you did. I did. I found myself, I said, this I know. Yeah, because nobody is trying to pass. Yeah. It's a den of thieves. Yeah, quite we're hitting literally. the ball here. It was still the days of speakerphone. And they would have fights. They had a tower on Sunset Boulevard. They had a nest of rooms in a tower. And they would be fighting with each other. And then there would suddenly be a pause. Someone would say, geez, if you could see what I see right now, that girl walking down Sunset, she is so beautiful. The fight was over. Yeah, yeah. 
nothing meant anything. The narcotic of sex. That's right. One of them asked for a glass of water. This is my first few weeks there. 1982, what do I know? I <laughs> would go to the sink, bring a glass of water, spit it out, like practically on me and say, this isn't water. And I would say, yes, it's water. What are you talking about? That's water. They'd say, I want professional water. And the whole time became about professional water. Robbie Bates, I could listen to you talk all day long. Well, that's it. We started in the fall of 2011, and we've conducted over 200 interviews since then. Thank you all for listening, and again, my thanks to WNYC. But we're not done. I'm excited to announce that the podcast is moving to the iHeart Podcast Network. We're going to take a few weeks off, and we will be back on January 12th with new episodes. If you're already a subscriber, you don't have to do anything different to get the new episodes. You'll still be subscribed, and the show will still be available wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's the iHeart app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's all for now. We'll be back soon on iHeart with more Here's the Thing. Okay, fine. I'll fess up. All the new summer stuff I got, it's on sale at Kohl's. And the deals are so good. Like our Sonoma Goods for Life patio furniture, it was 30% off. Got 30% off backyard games, too. And even picked up grilling tools for 20% off. Best part? I saved an extra 20% and got it in an hour with free store pickup. So now we're all set for summer, and I'm pretty sure we've got a cookout planned every weekend. Select styles. 20% offer ends June 27th. Some exclusions apply. See store or kohls.com for details. Don't think that you know everything about your child because there's something that they're not telling you. If I knew that this was going on, I would have went out there and brought my child back home. When Africa Hardy died in 2014, it seemed completely random, but it wasn't. It was part of a pattern. This is Algorithm, a podcast investigating a modern serial killer and how he could have been stopped. Listen to Algorithm Now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.